Matthew chapter 2. Our text this morning is 20 to 23. I'll read once again 13 to 23. And when they, wise men of course, were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream unto Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he, Joseph, was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Father, we thank you this morning for this compelling section of thy word, which Matthew, thy servant, driven by the Spirit of God, connects for us prophecies, Old Testament, in relationship to this New Testament presentation of Christ, that we might understand the great thing that you have had in mind for us, literally, before there ever was a blade of grass, before there ever was a tree or a flower to bloom on the side of the road. Oh, God, help us this morning to be a responsive people when we think upon the unique declaration concerning Messiah. It would be logical, we would imagine in the mind of Joseph, that one who was indeed born to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, uh, should have residency in, in Judea, if not in Jerusalem itself. And yet we read today, of the unique way in which Joseph and his young family were led of thee back to the reality of a place called Nazareth, and how indeed that uniquely fulfills the word of God as stated by the Hebrew prophets. Help us then as we appropriate the text to our own lives to pick up on something of the thrill and the blessedness that is found in these words of surety 
in a day in which it seems very little is indeed for certain. Ask your blessing upon your people together as we consider this text. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. When the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, notoriously known as ISIS, surged following uh, the withdrawal of U.S. troops some years ago, many Christian homes, many Christian businesses in that region were marked, as I've marked this pulpit, as I've marked the communion table, as I've marked places on the wall of the auditorium, uh, marked with the Arabic letter noon, equivalent to the English N, and representing the pejorative symbolism of the Bible place, Nazareth. Nazareth, the little town, and the nickname that goes with it, Nazarene, came to symbolize over the years a people despised. And those particular Christians, professing Christians living in Iraq and Syria back in the day, were indeed despised by ISIS. And the Arabic letter N, or noon, was placed on their homes and placed on their businesses, slating those places for destruction as a despised people because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The pejorative use of the name Nazareth and Nazarene is well documented historically and yet not well understood as to its origin. Some hold that there is a Bible word link to the Hebrew word for a tree's root or shoot or branch. I find that logic a little hard to follow. We do know that historically, the New Testament working man's village of Nazareth was about 55 miles from Jerusalem to the north, and it had a reputation of being a rough-and-tumble place. We might say today that it was a blue-collar town, and that residents there were unlikely to spend much time in their lives in pursuit of social refinements. The pejorative use of the name Nazarene can be seen even in the Apostle John's record of the gospel presentation of Christ as Nathaniel uh, hears of Jesus from an enthusiastic uh, follower named Philip, Philip saying, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth. The Jewish purist, Nathaniel, responded by saying, quote, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? John 146. Now, in the case of Nathaniel, his prejudicial comment was likely predicated upon the fact that the little village of Nazareth was simply not the specific focus of any Old Testament promise or prophecy. Nathaniel, as a religious, practicing, devout Jew of the New Testament period, uh, Nathaniel knew 
that there was not one Old Testament specific promise or prophecy uh, connected to uh, the little town of Nazareth. But Matthew chapter 2 verse 23 says, in essence, oh yes there is. Oh yes there is. So today we are taking note of the fact that on the one hand, there is no particular naming of Nazareth in the Old Testament prophetic witness of Messiah. And on the other hand, there are multiple prophetic references of Messiah as Nazarene. We find our way forward in apparent contradiction by recognizing that the word Nazarene was and is today often used pejoratively as a put-down to certain people or a group of people. Think of the modern pejorative term, trailer trash. If I said this morning, Jesus was trailer trash, you would rightly disagree, but you would surely understand what I was saying. There's a little of that in this descriptive title, Jesus the Nazarene. Matthew doesn't just say that Jesus became known as from Nazareth. He says he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, That is uh, an interesting thing to think upon. Now, we've been working in this text over the last three weeks to see how exactly The three revelatory dreams to Joseph, verse 13, 19, and 22, three revelatory dreams to Joseph in leading and protecting the young Messiah's family correspond to three Old Testament lines of prophecy which Matthew declares fulfilled. In the whole second chapter, we have spoken of Bethlehem as the place of direct prophetic fulfillment regarding Messiah's birthplace. The only direct fulfillment of prophecy in chapter 2 concerns the Lord Jesus and birth as to born in Bethlehem. We've also demonstrated our way uh, uh, forward in regards to the Old Testament prophetic reference to Egypt and Ramah as uh, fulfilled in indirect ways. And now we're focusing upon the reference to Nazareth. But the record of the family flight to Egypt, the massacre in Bethlehem at the hands of Herod, uh, the settling of the Lord's earthly family in Nazareth are all attached to additional Old Testament prophecies. And so again, our task today is to grasp how exactly prophecies about Nazareth and the Nazarene are fulfilled when there is no named prophecy or prophecies about Nazareth directly. And so we begin by saying, first of all, that there is a clear Old Testament prophecy concerning the light of God to rise in the region of Galilee, which includes, of course, Nazareth. Turn, please, with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah and chapter 9. 
Now, you'll be able to immediately recognize that this section of Old Testament prophecy is messianic simply by paying attention to the Christmas-related text in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You and I are familiar with that part of Isaiah chapter 9 because of its off reference during the holiday season. However, we're not as familiar with the opening of Isaiah chapter 9, which is likewise messianic in its focus and attention, and it speaks to the aspect of the historical reality of that northern region where the northern tribes uh, did occupy until they were overwhelmed by adversaries, and uh, it relates to the reality of the hope that is going to rise, the messianic hope that is going to rise in the areas of the north. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did move or more uh, grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. What does that prophecy say? It says that in the northern region, in fact, beyond the Jordan, in the area known as Galilee, or the area known as the accumulation of nations, uh, oftentimes Jewish outcasts lived there. But nonetheless, in that area called Galilee, or the northern regions beyond the Jordan, that there is where the light of God is going to arise. And he's going to shine upon a people that were indeed people that walked in darkness. The familiar messianic text introduced by the naming of a strange relocation from which the Jewish king shall operate is found in sections of the word of God like this one where that a place is designated, in this case Galilee, is the named place of Messiah's light to rise and the rise of the light of Messiah, uh, somewhat to the disgust of the Jewish purist, would be the fact that where that light shines, Galilee, includes an awful lot of people that are not Jewish. Includes an awful lot of Gentile people. And so Galilee, which is the name place of Messiah in Isaiah's prophecy here, includes, of course, Nazareth, which was located in Galilee. And specifically, you have, we're not going too quickly back to Matthew 2, we're going to stay in Isaiah for just a moment, but you have in Matthew chapter 2, uh, by way of angelic dream to Joseph, uh, time to go back to Israel, 
Uh, Matthew uh, tells us that uh, Joseph took his family back to Israel, but then when he hears that Archelaus is uh, ruling in his father's stead, that uh, he is uh, reticent uh, to go back to Judea and to that area near Bethlehem or, or Jerusalem, and uh, he rather is led of God to Galilee. And that leading of God back to Galilee and ultimately to the city of Nazareth would indeed be a, a fulfillment of uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and prophecies like that that speak of the light of Christ coming to the world, the light of Christ coming to the nations. Isaiah chapter 9. Furthermore, number two on your study outline, there's a clear Old Testament line of prophecy that the Lord's Christ will suffer horrifically. And since we're still in Isaiah, let's turn to the familiar 53rd chapter and remind ourselves of some of the clear statements that are made there in that text. Isaiah 53, let me read you 1 to 3. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This line of prophecy concerning a suffering Messiah was, by and large, rejected by the scribes and religious leaders over many generations of time, and therefore not taught to the Jewish people uh, in uh, days past, and certainly not taught today uh, at synagogue. The Jewish people are only taught of the strength and the glory of God's kingdom come. That was true in the first century. That is true in Jewish synagogues across the world today. Jewish people are only taught concerning the strength and the glory of Messiah. If you ask the local rabbi as to the meaning, the plain meaning of Isaiah 53, uh, as I have on occasion in years gone by, not locally but in other places, uh, uh, the, the rabbi responds that Isaiah 53 is talking about Israel. That the nation of Israel is the, uh, the one that's going to grow up as a tender plant, verse 2, as a root out of dry ground that has no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, they would say that's the nation of Israel. And then verse uh, 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. Uh, they would say that is the posture of the world's people concerning the nation of Israel, concerning Jewish people. And so you have uh, today an anti-defamation uh, league, defamation league uh, that is established uh, of Jewish orientation uh, that goes after the aspect of, of hate crimes uh, that are committed around the world, uh, especially those that have been committed and are committed against uh, the Jewish people. And hey, there's no doubt that uh, as a group, as an ethnic group of people, what has happened uh, to God's people Israel 
over the generations of time historically is absolutely heart-wrenching. And we can certainly understand that uh, anyone that would be Jewish uh, would live, as it were, under the shadow, under the historical shadow of phenomenal hate and opposition and cruelty and death. That said, he means he. And the reference here is not to a nation. And if it were to a nation, it might better be she. But it's in reference to Messiah, says Isaiah 53, of which you're familiar, that is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And you understand, as I understand, that that phrase, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, is the response of first century Israel to their Messiah in the first advent. For he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Why? Well, because they despised him instead. And, as Isaiah 53, 3 says it at the end, we, being the Jewish people, esteemed him not. Now, you and I, when we preach and teach Isaiah 53, we might apply those words to mankind at large. Mankind at large despises uh, the reality of Christ. Mankind at large esteems not uh, the truth of Christ and the gospel. Yet prophets like Isaiah and the clear depictions within the Hebrew uh, poetical books portray Messiah as being held in contempt, as being esteemed not, and in fact despised by his own ethnic people. And that is exactly what the prophecy says here in Isaiah 53. You have often been reminded of the resurrected Christ, who himself, on the day of the resurrection, towards the evening, is uh, joining uh, two disciples on their way to Emmaus. And the Lord Jesus, on that occasion, rebukes those disciples for their poor grasp of the Old Testament scriptures. He said to them, quote, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And, of course, the risen Christ expected the answer from his followers, his disciples, to be, yes, we should be expecting, as Jewish individuals living in the first century, that if indeed these are the days of Messiah, that there would indeed be uh, suffering for Messiah. There would indeed be esteem not for Messiah. There would indeed be uh, uh, despising uh, for uh, uh, Messiah. Yes, being esteemed not. Yes, being despised. Yes, being rejected of men was always, always a part of the prophet's presentation of Messiah to come. Matthew is simply going to say to us, Jesus the Nazarene, 
Number three, the clear Old Testament prophecy that finds its fulfillment in a label that stuck in the New Testament historical record. Isaiah said he was despised, rejected of men, man of sorrows. Back to Matthew chapter 2 and our text for this morning. We are told, verse 23, that Joseph came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Notice the yes, prophets. Not one prophet speaking, but many prophets speaking of this truth. He, Messiah, shall be called Nazarene. What does it mean? It means he shall be called despised. He shall be esteemed not. Luke tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, received the angelic messenger announcing Messiah's birth while she was still living in her parents' home in Nazareth. We know that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem before the Lord's birth because of ancestral registration and tax assessments. We know that after Herod died and his death was gross, uh, as historically reported, if you take the occasion to read the secular historical records of the death of Herod the Great, it is a gagger. Uh, it is absolutely gross in phenomenal uh, literal gut-wrenching uh, description, uh, Herod uh, bit the dust. He did not die easily. He did not die quickly. He did not die comfortably. He died as a very tormented man. And that's the good part of the thing. For afterwards, he certainly went to a Christless eternity uh, in uh, the place of torment called Hades. Herod died a gross death, as described. Nonetheless, Joseph, in our text, verse 20, is told to arise from Egypt and go back to Israel. The dream that came to Joseph, as recorded in verse 20, only said, Joseph, take your family back to Israel. Now, again, a little bit of projection here into that moment of time. Joseph may well have thought uh, that his stepson, the young Messiah, ought to live in the center of all things Jewish near Jerusalem, like back in Bethlehem. And in fact, because he had been previously led of God by angelic dream to Bethlehem, it would appear that at minimum Joseph was thinking back to Bethlehem. Or he may have been thinking, well, maybe we should take the, 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 the newborn king of the Jews right to the very city center in Jerusalem. That wouldn't be illogical. But when Joseph hears that the chip off the old block of Herod, Herod's son, Archelaus, verse 22, uh, is uh, reigning. Just look at that verse. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room or the place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go thither. He thought, 
I don't want to take my family back to Bethlehem. I don't want to take my family back to Jerusalem. I don't want to go back there. Uh, the Lord's told me to go back to Israel. I'm heading back to Israel. But I don't know that I want to live in Judea. I don't know why I want to live in Bethlehem. I don't know whether I want to live in Jerusalem. For me, that would be an unsafe place because of the ruler named Archelaus. Notwithstanding, says verse 22, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee, familiar Galilee, and settled in the village of Nazareth, verse 22. There is a phenomenal sense of divine and human cooperation that is being displayed before us in this text, and it's really beautiful to think about in relationship to its modern uh, communication. Uh, God in dream, in a dream, in a revelatory word, said to Joseph, go to Israel. God told Joseph what to do. As Joseph started doing what God told him what to do, Joseph had questions. And Joseph's questions led to the aspect of concerns. And I, I'm quite confident that his concerns were stated uh, towards God. And, uh, and uh, Joseph, if he was a... Uh, uh, of a certain uh, uh, Christian bent of our day, would have said, God told me to go back to Israel. I'm going to back to Bethlehem. I'm going to live in Bethlehem, and God can protect me no matter what happens or who's there. God will take care of me. I'm going back to Bethlehem. God never said go back to Bethlehem. God said go back to Israel. In that case, Joseph would have been pushing the word of God beyond its intention. God uses the nastiness of a human ruler named Archelaus. He uses that nasty ruler to cause uh, angst to rise in the heart of a good stepdad who has the protection of his family in mind. And uh, Joseph says, you know, I don't really want to go there. I don't want to go back to Bethlehem. I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I think maybe we ought to go to a different place. I think maybe we ought to go elsewhere. I think maybe we ought to take the family also elsewhere. I would imagine that if you could grab a cup of coffee and sit down in the living room with Joseph and Mary as they talked about these things, you would hear Joseph and Mary going back and forth saying, well, we know that God could protect us if we went back to Bethlehem, but I don't think we should go back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem either, says Mary to Joseph. I mean, I'm just guessing you know that. But I'm just saying that those kind of normal human relations are always a part of the way that God leads his dear people along. And then in a third angelic vision, a dream of revelatory communication, Joseph is warned of God in a dream. He turns aside into Galilee. Why Galilee? Well, my best guess is, is because, you know, they got contacts there, because they have familiarity with the place. If you've ever been in, a, in an area of the country, uh, uh, that is totally foreign uh, to the aspect of your birthplace or the place that you regularly live, uh, then, uh, you know, everything's new, everything's a marvel, you don't know where to go for anything. And, uh, and Sherry and I can relate to that because so often we've come uh, into an area of the country, whether it be Iowa or Florida uh, or Ohio uh, uh, or even here in western Michigan, though we were Michiganders by birth, uh, that is totally foreign to us upon arrival. And so we can relate to that. And if we had a choice, if God said, you guys can go wherever you, wherever you want to go, well, I don't know how I would even exercise that will 
of mine today. Uh, but one thing for sure, it wouldn't be too hard to say, well, I got family in Florida, I got family in Ohio, and, and uh, so, you know, where would I go? Well, uh, you know, most people make decisions like this, like wouldn't you want to live as near to the grandkids as you possibly could if the Lord uh, will was into it? Well, of course. And if you don't have a Bible verse that says you have to stay exactly where you are or leading of the Lord to direct you in a place, well, then guess what? You'd make those kind of logical, human, everyday, common decisions. And Joseph apparently makes a, a rather common decision, and that is, well, Mary, let's go back by your folks. Let's go back to Nazareth. Let's go back to the little town of Nazareth. Even though there isn't anything in the Bible that is specifically mentioning that, let's go back to Nazareth. So the question remains, what exactly then does Matthew mean when he referencing the prophecies, plural, that Messiah shall be called Nazarene? Verse 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew wants us to understand the term Nazarene, pejoratively. Messiah would be associated with the rough and tumble. Messiah would be associated with the esteemed not. Messiah would be associated with the despised in the eyes of the Jewish aristocracy. Messiah, the kingly son of David, would be associated first and foremost with the common and often disrespected people of the nation. Why, it's as if God is choosing the lesser things of the world to accomplish his great purpose and plan. 1 Corinthians 2, by the way. The label of societal derision, the label of societal derision, would be carried on and applied to not only the Lord, the Nazarene. He's a Nazarene. What are you talking about, Messiah? He's a Nazarene. Or we might say, trailer trash. Or use some other pejorative term. That label of societal derision would be carried forward. And not only applied to Jesus, but would be applied to the followers of Jesus who never lived in Nazareth ever, 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 ever. So look with me for just a brief moment in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. The apostle of Christ named Paul was standing before the Roman governor Felix, being accused by Jewish religious authorities. That's the background and setting and scene of Acts 24. They bring in a shotgun lawyer. They bring in a lawyer of reputation and flamboyancy uh, to argue the case of the Jewish religious state against the Apostle 
whole. And if you read beginning at the chapter, especially verse 2-3, you'll see that uh, uh, the lawyer, uh, the flamboyant uh, orator, uh, makes his case by, first of all, buttering up the governor. He just butters up the governor. He just butters up the governor. I mean, all the butter is lathered on thick uh, by the one arguing before the governor, Felix. And then uh, that lawyer says, verse 4, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, and I'm sure that Felix was already saying, you already have been. You already have been quite tedious, mister. But nonetheless, uh, the lawyer finally kicks it in gear. And he says, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious of thee, I pray thee, pray thee that thou would hear us of thy clemency in a few words, in clemency a few words. For we have found this man, that is a reference to Paul. We have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And the word sect, S-E-C-T, in that text is from the Greek heresy. And so the uh, uh, lawyer arguing the case of the Jewish high priest who is named Ananias, 24-1, uh, uh, the, the lawyer uh, argues that Paul has been a, a pest, uh, that he has been an insurrection activist, and then he uh, uh, pejoratively describes Paul as the ringleader of the heresy of the Nazarenes. Now, Paul never lived in Nazareth. And so uh, this is not a reference to somehow Paul uh, stayed for an extended time in Nazareth. No, uh, this is simply the use of the term Nazarene pejoratively in a contemptible way by the Jewish rulers because Paul, like his Lord, was despised. Paul, like his Lord, was esteemed not. Paul, like his Lord, was considered Nazarene. And I'd like to say, me too. Now, I'm not doctrinally a fit with the evangelical denomination called Nazarene, I don't usually walk around saying to people, I'm a Nazarene. <laughs> I don't even really like to say to people, I'm a Baptist, but I am. But it's not what I lead with when I talk with people. But I certainly, except in this pulpit, would not necessarily walk around saying, yeah, I'm Nazarene. I'm Nazarene. Because people would get the wrong idea concerning that. But I am Nazarene in this community. I am. And you are. I am even Nazarene in the eyes of many professing Christians here in this area. I am. <laughs> and some of you are. I take this N-word, this N-word, I take as a badge of honor. And so should you, as a faithful follower of Christ. Our Lord was never understated 
regarding this issue in the life of his followers. The Lord said to the disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. John 15, 18, and 19. Listen, we never want to downplay Never want to downplay the fact that God's people are people of glory ahead. But glory is not often a part of my earthly story. Glory is not often a part of your earthly story, present tense. We sing it and we sing it right. Oh, that will be. Glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. These are not our days of glory. They weren't the days of glory for the Lord in the first advent first. And they are not our days of glory here and now. All the more reason to anticipate that Jesus is coming again. Now this morning, I'm simply going to ask the Apostle Peter to end this sermon. And so I say to the Apostle Peter, Peter, how should we, as the congregation at the First Baptist Church of Elto, how should we view the true sense of Christian life normal? How should we view the true sense of Christian life normal while living in Elto, Michigan, 2022? Here's Peter's answer. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. As Christ, so Christian. As Christ, so Christian. It is a family thing. It is a family thing. We are, in this world, Nazarene. But he who came, comes. And when he comes, it's power and glory time. Oh, Father, cause your people to anticipate the great blessing of the coming day of Christ, even as we rejoice and today specifically remember at the table of our Lord the first advent. There is no name named among men whereby we can speak honestly of thy salvation except the name of the Lord Jesus. And help us then today as we sing in conclusion 
that there really is something about that blessed name of Jesus Christ. We pray in that name, and for the sake of our dear Savior, amen. 83 in your hymn.